You're listening to The Semi-Failed Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Whatever time of day it is right now, welcome to episode 15. I'm your host, Leticia, and did I listen to the Rewatchables' latest episode? The one where they review Stand By Me? Yes, I did. No comment. Something I will comment on is Mucho Mucho Amor, the new Netflix documentary about the life of Walter Mercado. Someone in the movie said it best. He says, do I believe in astrology? Uh, I believe in Walter Mercado. I think most of us felt this way. This was a good film. Walter was majestic, charismatic, and adored by everyone. Bill Bakula was not any of these things. I'm surprised the internet hasn't started calling him Bill Baculo. Anyway, today I'm not going to talk about astrology. I'm going to talk about a more spiritual experience, playing video games. I've been playing them ever since I was a little girl, and it all started with the Nintendo Entertainment System. There were over 700 games released on the NES. I'm going to talk specifically about five of them. They're not necessarily the greatest NES games of all time, not even by my standards. Rather, these are the five most memorable, for different reasons. For each game, I'm going to give the overall summary of the story, highlight some of the gameplay features, and explain why each game was so influential in my life. So, here we go. The first game I'm going to talk about is Metroid, developed and published by Nintendo. Metroid follows the adventures of a bounty hunter named Samus Aran. The Galactic Federation hires Samus to travel to the planet Zebus, or Zebeth, or Zebes, whatever you want to call it. It's the home base of the Space Pirates and their leader Mother Brain. The Space Pirates have captured life-draining organisms called Metroids and plan to replicate them to be used as a biological weapon. Samus must defeat Mother Brain and her minions to prevent an all-out galactic war. Metroid is, of course, a two-dimensional game. You have Samus depicted as a sprite as they travel up, down, left and right through this planet. Most times, if you retrieve an upgrade, then you can unlock new areas, but you would have to return to an area where you were just at. The upgrades were unlike anything you've ever seen. Yes, there are suit and weapon upgrades, but the morph ball? Samus' shape shifts into a perfect little ball and can roll into small spaces. And of course, there's the screw attack. Samus can spin jump into the air and obliterate enemies in the way. As the game goes along, Samus goes from bounty hunter to a killing machine. Let me tell you why this game was so important to me. My family used to hang out with this uh, other family that lived just a few miles outside of the city limits. They were mostly isolated, but there were a couple of houses just nearby. They had a neighbor that we met once, and I think he was a teenager, maybe in high school. He seemed super cool because he seemed to know a lot about video games. And remember, the internet was at its infancy at that time. It's not like you could go on a computer and look up all the cheat codes and get a full walkthrough of the game. Your way of getting help was by subscribing to Nintendo Power or owning a Game Genie. At one point, this neighbor talks about Metroid. He tells us to put in a code. And when you play the game, you get codes that let you return to a certain area, kind of like a save point. This neighbor tells us to enter the words, Justin Bailey. Enter it on the top line, leave the bottom line blank. So my brother and I tried this, and I was shocked when the game started. 
We're near the end of the game, and I just discovered that Samus was a woman. I assumed Samus was a man, because every other game that existed had a male lead. And now you have Samus without her suit. She's wearing boots, a purple bodysuit, and has long green hair. She looks like she's about to do a Jane Fonda workout. I didn't realize I was a feminist until that moment. I was so happy to see a female being the hero in a game. I'm sure I'm not the only one. I could have discovered this mystery if I was actually good at the game. If you complete the entire storyline quickly enough, Samus would appear at the end credits without her suit. And the only difference was that Samus now had red hair. This always confused me. It, it's, one, it's green in one scene, and then it's red in another, and then through the rest of the Metroid series she has blonde hair. I don't know what, what's up with all the changes. Whatever the color, it's just fan service. Back to Justin Bailey. People have been trying for years to find the source of this code. How did anyone figure this out? The developers confirmed they didn't intentionally put it in there. The best guess is that there was some kid named Justin Bailey who thought it'd be funny to enter his own name as a code, and boom, green-haired Samus. Something I've wanted to do for a long time is write a film adaptation of Metroid. I haven't done it yet because I find it hard to write an entire screenplay with one person. I'd have to introduce more humans or humanoid characters to the mix. I don't know. But as God is my witness, as Walter Mercado is my witness, I will write that screenplay. And Brie Larson will beg me to be in that movie. The next game I'm going to talk about is Fester's Quest, developed and published by Sunsoft. Yes, Uncle Fester from the Adams Family. One night, as he's chilling outside, admiring the moonlight, a giant alien ship descends upon his town. For unknown reasons, they are about to invade the city and abduct Gomez. Fester decides to take his gun and track down all of the aliens that supposedly don't want peace. He goes onto surface streets, sewers, and the ship itself to eliminate the threat. Fester's quest is an overhead shooter, so looking down, you would see Fester start out with a gun and shoot everything that he comes across. By killing the enemies, many different items would drop to be collected. You would get money, weapon upgrades, keys to get into buildings, light bulbs to light up the sewer areas, basically anything that would help you in the game. You would also run into different members of the Adams family, and they would give you key items like a whip, vice grips, and TNT, only the finest. You go inside these sterile buildings, and once inside, it turns into uh, a maze. You have to move left and right correctly to get to the right door to find a boss. Defeating a boss gets you a puzzle of the alien ship, and somehow completing the puzzle lets you into their ship. I'm just going to say this once. Screw this game. So first off, the cover of the game, the actual cartridge, had Fester with a spider on his forehead and he's making a very strange facial expression and what looks to be like red lipstick. In the beginning of the game, when he first encounters the alien ship, he turns to the camera with a bewildered look, but his eyes are bulging out, like they're trying to come out of their sockets. And in the game, if you're ever in a bind, if you're getting swarmed by a bunch of aliens, you use an item, a noose. And an image of Lurch appears with the words, You rang? The good news was that all the aliens would be eliminated, but the bad news is that you had to see Lurch's creepy face, and any presentation of a noose is just now inappropriate. What I tried to do in these instances was look away when I got the chance, or mash the A button so those graphics would just disappear. I would argue that the aliens are better looking than Fester and Lurch. Another negative. 
The gameplay was horrible. You had to be careful when picking up items. You could over time upgrade your weapon, make it more powerful, but if you picked up an item that said Gunner Whip and it's colored in red, then your weapon gets downgraded. And you would have to attack dozens of enemies and hundreds of blobs of slime in order to get the upgrade back. And here's the worst part. You die, you start over. There are no checkpoints, no save codes. You'd have to go all the way to the very beginning. Wouldn't that be frustrating if you got to the final boss fight and died? <sighs> Sounds worse than a Dark Souls game. I have one positive. The music is great. With the soundtrack play, it makes it seem like Fester is an action hero, even though he doesn't have the body of one. When he walks around the mean streets of the city with no name, you had an upbeat, adventurous song. In the sewers, it was like you were part of a covert operation. And then to lead up to each boss fight, the music was more ominous. The mood was captured perfectly in this game. All of this stayed in my head for 30 years. Everything I remember from this game is so vivid. The gameplay was stupid, but... You know, I enjoyed the heck out of this music. The next game is Track and Field 2, developed and published by Konami. We're getting into sports now. Track and Field 2 is set during the 1988 Summer Olympics. You had three modes, Training Mode, Versus Mode, and Championship Mode. Training Mode is just practice on any of the Olympic events. Versus Mode is a head-to-head -head contest with your best friend or annoying sibling. You can only play arm wrestling in this section. But championship mode is the main competition. You could represent one of 10 countries, and the objective was to earn qualifying scores in all 15 events and then medal in each event during the second playthrough. If you were good enough, you could participate in two exhibition events, hang gliding and gun firing. Before I talk about gameplay, let me just say something more about the exhibition games. I don't think hang gliding or gun firing was ever a demonstration sport in the Olympics. I'm not sure why those were chosen. But gunfiring the way they did in this game would never become a reality. You were shooting people. These monster-looking guys in purple and blue suits would pop up on the screen and you'd take your NES zapper and try to do better here than you did on Duck Hunt. And these guys popped up in the strangest places. They'd emerge sideways behind a building. They'd come out of the back trunk of a car or a sewer. Very funny to think about that now. Your mastery of the controls is vital in track and field too because you're not going to be using the same technique for each event. For events like fencing and taekwondo, some button mashing would be okay, but it was better to time your attack in order to land a hit on your opponent. For high dive and hammer throw, they require use of the D-pad. But for most of the events, you need to tap the A button like your life depended on it. That was everyone's biggest problem with the game. Tapping the A button would increase your power meter, but you couldn't max it out with just basic tapping. I didn't own a turbo controller and the power pad was not compatible with this game. So here's what we do. Please close your eyes so you can imagine this. We grab an eyedrop bottle, not the visine bottle that's flat and wide. It had to be cylindrical with curved edges. We'd grab the controller with the left hand, put it up to our chest, and then with our right hand, feverishly slide the eyedrop bottle back and forth across the A button. Think of it like strumming a guitar with a pick, except the pick was an eyedrop bottle and the guitar was up to your neck. Using this method would give us the power needed to finish a race or launch ourselves six meters into the air when pole vaulting. That's 19 feet, eight inches for all you non-metric fools. Thinking about it now, I'm surprised we didn't damage the controller by doing this. The good news is that 
I've never had to do this for another game. I didn't need to. I played track and field too a lot when I was a kid, but there was one thing I didn't like. I never liked the use of dialogue in 8-bit games. In the case of the NES, if one or two words were uttered in the game, the output was poor, very robotic. Let me give you a taste. You clear a level, you hear this. Qualify. You're starting a race. On your mark. Get set. Here's the worst one of them all. Foul. He's saying foul. Foul. I hate it. Foul. Not because I'm being told I failed. Foul. But the way it is spoken gave me the creeps. Foul. Foul. Okay, that's enough. I still love this game. My favorite events were fencing and archery. Hammer throw could suck it. The next game, and the second sports game on my list, is called Super Dodgeball, developed by Technos Japan and published by CSG ImageSoft. It's self-explanatory. It's dodgeball. There are three modes. World Cup play is the main story. Versus play is head-to-head with your best friend or annoying sibling. And beanball is like a game of last man standing. In World Cup play, you're Team USA and you play single elimination style against various national teams. The rules of dodgeball are a little bit different than what you're familiar with. In World Cup play, you have two teams of six, three players on each team are in the main court, and the others are standing on the sidelines. In this version of dodgeball, the objective is to hit the opponent, but they're not eliminated outright. There's a health bar at the top of the screen, and each hit will take off some of their health. And if the opponent catches the ball, nothing happens. Nobody comes in, nobody gets eliminated. That opponent just gets control of the ball. The way to win the match is to deplete the health bars of your opponent. And when they get defeated, they die. They turn into little angels that start to float to the pearly gates. Kind of morbid, to tell you the truth. You can't name your players, unfortunately. They have built-in names. I didn't know until recently that they all had last names. I don't I don't remember seeing the surnames. These guys were called Sam Powers, Randy Sting, and Bill Flash. I see a theme here. I would always have a player named Steve on my team. I don't think he had the best moves, but he had the same name as my oldest brother, so he's going in. If you wanted to, you could throw the ball like normal, or you could do a power shot. You go near the back of the court, you get a running start, And before you cross the line, you release the ball and it whistles. It turns red. It changes shape. It doesn't move in a straight line. But when it hits your opponent, it is incredible. You hear this thwack and your opponent goes flying. They might fly off the screen and land on the other side of the court the whole time having this frightened look on their face. A next level move is if you can hit all three opponents at one time. This is another game where I really like the music. In World Cup play, the match would take place in an opponent's homeland, and the music was appropriate for that location. Even the instrumentation was influenced by the music of that nation. Of the songs, I really liked India and Kenya. And I think about it now, it was very possible for that game to be racist. I'm not saying they came close, but with a different developer, they could have dumbed down everything. For Japan, the backdrop of that contest is Mount Fuji. There are also cherry blossom trees lining the court. It's beautiful. If you had the same developers that you have for, say, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, they would have uh, removed Mount Fuji and put in posters advertising sushi and sake. The players would wear kimonos instead of shorts and tank tops. And in China, they could have given the team horrible names like, you know what? I'm not even going there. My point is, I feel like Super Dodgeball was respectful of each nation, even if the object was to kill them all. 
I think this game isn't racist also because of the final matches against USSR. Nobody likes their style. I've got one more game for you. I have saved the best for last. The last game I want to share with you is The Immortal, developed by Sandcastle and published by a bunch of greedy, incompetent jerkwads. I mean, Electronic Arts. This, in my opinion, is the worst NES game of all time. You've got an unnamed wizard in this game, and he goes into the Labyrinth of Eternity to find his mentor Mortimer, who is facing a dragon that is blocking his path to the Fountain of Youth. As he goes deeper into the labyrinth, the wizard has to face goblins, trolls, and death traps. That's as much of the story as you need to know. This game uses isometric graphics, meaning this has a 3D look to it. And if you have to duel against any of the monsters, you get a close-up of the fight. Here's what you really need to know. There is a lot of death in this game. The wizard can die many, many, many times in this game. He can die by spiders, acid, whirlpools, arrows, flames, worms, picking the wrong item, and ladders. Yes, ladders. Seriously, if you don't descend a ladder properly, you will fall to your death. And I don't think I even listed half of the ways the wizard can die, but every death is graphic. I first saw this game on a show called Video Power. It was short-lived, but uh, these kids would battle each other in a game of trivia and then play a newly released video game, and we would see who would get the best score. But it wasn't until my brother rented the game and brought it home when all my troubles started. My second favorite pastime behind playing video games was watching my brother Jay play video games. I was into Twitch before Twitch even existed. He rented The Immortal from the store back when rental shops existed, and he didn't have it for long, maybe three days, so I watched him play for a little bit of it. I never tried it myself, it didn't seem like my kind of game, but I saw the worst of it when he wasn't playing. I'll explain. For some games, if you stay idle on the title screen, it would automatically play clips from the game. So there, you see this poor old wizard with his staff and red hat and gray robe. And at first, he's dodging all of these obstacles. He's walking at a brisk pace to avoid fireballs and goblins. He's traveling by magic carpet and canoeing on a log. Then, I start to see the many, many ways that he can die. He gets swallowed up by a giant worm that emerges from the ground. He gets pulled underwater by an unknown creature, probably Loch Ness Monster, I don't know. And this is what pushed me over the edge. The wizard is standing on a rock, and he is facing a giant dragon. He has nowhere to go. He can't jump to another rock, he can't fall down, he can't climb up a ladder. He's stuck. And then the dragon opens his mouth and spews fire directly at the wizard, turning him into ash. The wizard is screwed, and the dragon goes Ultracarus on him. I was terrified of that game. I was terrified of the NES. The console was in my room, and I couldn't stay in my own room with that thing in there. Even though the Immortal got returned, I felt like the Nintendo would still have control of me. It would be able to transmit evil spirits into my brain and my body. I was so scared of being in my own room at night, I convinced my parents to let me sleep in their room. This went on for what seemed like months. I didn't want to sleep in my parents' room. I liked having my own room. But at some point, we knew that we had to get past this. It was just a matter of how. I'll let you know now that a solution wasn't to move the Nintendo out of my room. If you're wondering why, well, I don't know, I was nine years old. I was irrational. 
I feel like we tried a lot of things to help me be less scared of the Nintendo system and that game. Nightlights, uh, a painting of a guardian angel hanging over my bed. My mom even tried using an egg. Some of you know this as Umansi or Limpia. Some form of this has been around for ages. So what she would do is take the egg and draw the sign of the cross all over my body. And while she does this, she says a prayer in Spanish. At the end, she gets a glass of water, cracks the egg open, and dumps it into the water. It's supposed to be very cloudy, like all that negative energy has come out of my body and into this glass. That didn't work. Ultimately, we found a method that did work. Drawing. We checked out a book from the library that had to do with art therapy. I'm 100% unsure of what I did, but I think I was instructed to draw out the images that scared me, so... Uh, one of the end images I drew was the game cartridge with the immortal on the cover. And one of the next tests was to destroy or cast away these negative influences by destroying the drawings. I either drew a big X mark over each drawing or burned the drawings, ironically. But whatever I did worked. I started to feel better and eventually moved back into my room and slept in my own bed. Here's where I'm really embarrassed. I was doing research on YouTube for this episode, and I, I want to give credit to James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd, and Nefarious Wes. Both of them had great reviews of this game. I found out The Immortal was originally released on the Apple IIGS, a PC. Soon after, the game got ported to a few other platforms, including Nintendo. Now, the graphics were better on those other systems, maybe because they were 16-bit or better, but the other versions particularly for the Sega Genesis, was even more violent than the Nintendo version. Nintendo changed some of the elements so it could be less graphic than the original. Do you mean to tell me that I was traumatized by a watered-down version of this game? <sighs> You'll be happy to know that as an adult, I am fully recovered from this game. I've come across more graphic games and haven't batted an eye. I've played through the entire Gears of War series, I've probably seen every fatality that has come through Mortal Kombat. I have found other things to be scared of, like Black Widow spiders, climate change, billionaires. I'm just happy that my experience with the Immortal didn't keep me away from video games forever. Now one question remains, would I be willing to replay all of these games as an adult? I don't know, but it might not be possible. I don't know where my old NES is right now. It might be at my parents' house. But the Nintendo Switch has slowly ported over old Nintendo and Super Nintendo games. I believe Metroid and Super Dodgeball are available to play. I don't think they're planning to port over Fester's Quest or Track and Field 2 anytime soon. Now, when I was first preparing for this episode, which was two weeks ago, the Immortal was not available to play on a current generation console. However... When I looked at its Wikipedia page, it noted that it was scheduled to be released on the Switch last Wednesday, July 15th. Eric turned on the Switch last Wednesday. He confirmed it. It's there. This might be a pipe dream. I would love to get all five of these games and do a marathon on Twitch. I would play one game after the other, and I wouldn't stop until I defeat every one of them, including Fester's Quest, including The Immortal. I don't have the technology or the audience to do that right now, but maybe someday. Who knows? I'm sure a lot of you have played Nintendo games at some point in your life. So what were your favorite games? What were your least favorite games? What were the most memorable? 
you can email me at semifieldwriter at gmail.com. I do have a website, semifieldwriter.com, and then I have Instagram and Twitch at semifieldwriter. Thanks to all of you for listening. I hope these next two weeks are fantastic for you, and I will talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you.